listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. It has been over two years now that I have been in expectation of the arrival of this gospel text in our lectionary. There was a stretch of time early when I dreaded it, and then a time when I was in a posture that said, I'm ready, bring it on. For the past year, it has been mostly just waiting in the knowledge that it was on its way, and that I would speak as openly and honestly to it as I could. Over the past three years, the way this text might be heard has changed for many of us here. For some, that's because they have exchanged wedding vows over those years. Perhaps with those words, what God has joined together, let no one separate, proclaimed over their marriage covenant. Others have celebrated significant anniversary milestones of 10 or 25 or even 50 years And so the text rings with a deep and striking power. Some have welcomed children into their lives, and that can also deepen the poignancy of this teaching, particularly given that in Mark's account, Jesus moves directly from his words on marriage and divorce to a teaching about children, about welcoming and receiving the child. Last week, when we blessed little Beatrice Craker, the liturgy included these words. I said, Welcome, Beatrice, child of love. God is here to bless you. And blessed are you beyond telling to be born to parents who love you and love each other. And she is ever blessed to be born to Adam and Mary Jane, who love her and who love each other. The same is true of little Cora, whose voice can often be heard preaching away from the back of the church. Yet others of us have experienced the failure of our marriages over these past three years, which can't help but knot up our stomachs and put a lump in our throats when we hear those words read aloud. In marriage, they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. But some of us know all too well the fracturing of oneness. It isn't the way it's supposed to be, and we know it. No one who ever exchanges those vows of marriage does it expecting that they might not hold, that they'll ever be separated or broken or shattered. You walk into the church on your wedding day, maybe a bit nervous or even scared half to death, but full of hope and resolve and love all the same. Everyone you've invited is smiling They're congratulating you and telling you how grand you both look, how wonderful this day is. The last thing on your mind is that someday it is all going to come tumbling down. 
What God is joining together in the presence of this community of friends and families is good and lasting and strong. That's what you know or hope on that day. Now, it's not unimportant to recognize the context of Jesus' words here in Mark. Some Pharisees came and to test Jesus, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The hostility toward Jesus and his movement is rising among those self-appointed preservers of the religious and social status quo, and they've begun to look for ways to discredit him. But why ask this question, this specific question about divorce? Well, perhaps because it was on a matter of divorce and remarriage that that other very challenging figure, John the Baptist, had been imprisoned and eventually executed. John, remember, had been openly critical in the public square of King Herod, who had married the divorced wife of his own brother, Philip. And so now these Pharisees, remembering that, come not seeking wisdom or counsel, but rather with a rhetorical trap, not unlike what they would later ask Jesus when they asked, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? They're trying to corner him rhetorically. But as with that later test, Jesus will not be caught out. So he answers their question with a question. What did Moses command you? To which they answer, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. And it's true. It is allowed in the Torah, in the book of Deuteronomy. Ah, Jesus replies. But that is simply a concession offered to a people of hardened hearts. It's a sort of situation ethics for the meantime. You need to go deeper, he says. And this is the point at which Jesus takes them to another Torah text, a foundational one from the creation narratives. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, and for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In effect, what this says to them is that while the Torah might make provision for divorce, That divorce still marks a breach in the intended oneness. There is, in other words, always a loss and a wound. So they've not trapped him. Because he's shown himself to be both deeply faithful to the Torah and at the same time critical of divorce. And this critical stance is intensified in his discussion with the disciples that follows in which Jesus says that whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. If she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Wow, not much breathing space there. Yet I believe that it's important that this teaching be heard in the context of his larger message around the place of the vulnerable and the outcast. The Pharisees remember had asked only if it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. 
which is actually the only instance of divorce addressed in Deuteronomy. For a man to divorce his wife in the world of Jesus was to effectively leave her destitute and without any security whatsoever. It was unlikely in that world for anyone to consider marrying or taking in a divorced woman, and so unless her family was to come to her aid, she was now thrown out of the security of household and into a space where her only status was that of being considered spoiled. How to live then? Who knew? Further, if there were children of that marriage, they were likely left with their mother, meaning they too would have been destitute. And it seems that for Mark, Jesus has this in view as he immediately goes on to teach that lesson about the place of the child in community, of the little one, of the vulnerable one. While Jesus seems no more keen on a woman divorcing her husband than on a man divorcing his wife, at least in Jewish circles, it would have been almost utterly unknown for a woman to do that. It would have been far too high a risk, voluntary poverty, marginalization. In other words, while it hardly seems a particularly romantic thing, at least part of why Jesus is so committed to the permanent nature of marriage is that it provides a strong defense against economic and social marginalization. Well, that's all context, and it's fine as far as it goes, but it doesn't go quite far enough, this business of reading it in context, because we still have to heed Jesus' words about oneness, about the two being made one. So as Matt Skinner says in his comments on this passage, quote, Jesus describes marriage with utmost seriousness, something that transcends contractual obligations and economic utility, as something rooted in human identity. This offers a sharp reproof to any who would construe marriage as a contract of convenience, casually formed and casually broken. If marriage is what Jesus says it is, then we understand better why failed marriages bring such pain to couples, extended families, and communities. Such pain to couples, extended families, communities, and isn't that the truth? But it is a pain not beyond salving, a wound not beyond healing, a failure not beyond forgiving. It's also a hard experience not beyond forgetting. And so for all that the wound is healed, there is always that scar tissue that remains, tied up in all of those best intentions, strong vows, treasured memories of oneness. But is the scar tissue beyond the grace and mercy of God? No. For Christ has not saved us from our sin and our brokenness, but in the very midst of it. 
not by making us new and improved versions of our sorry selves, but by taking us into himself and placing us under his great and terrible mercy. And under that mercy is a good place to be. For that, on this Thanksgiving weekend, I am deeply, deeply thankful. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.